Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. I first started taking drugs by chewing blocks of hash. Oh my God. I think my copy has like blood stains on it from shooting up while reading it. Party animal. I hate to say that because that makes me sound Paris Hilton. I was on the, as right. I call it, the Autobahn to nowhere. I'm very lucky because would you have wanted to have a celebrity junkie for a dad? Um, so we're going. So lovely to have you in my bungalow, as we just called it. Your boudoir. My boudoir. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, and you came over from lovely Pasadena. We were just talking about how you moved there. Yes. After 20 years in Koreatown, is that what you were saying? 18 years in K-Town. And then I lived for five years or so in Silver Lake and Echo Park. And um, I had a roommate during that time, which was very <laughs> sort of challenging, I'm sure, for her. <laughs> By the way, guess what I just remembered? What? I should do an intro. I really am not joking. You're listening to After Party Pod with Anna David. It's a podcast about addiction recovery. I recently changed this up and started record not recording the intro separately. I'm sitting here with one of the most brilliant women I have ever met. No pressure. No pressure. Her name is Heather King. Yeah. I met her because we were both on, was it a podcast? It was kind of pre-podcast. Oh, yeah. John Griffiths. Our friend John had a show that was like about entertainment meets recovery. Yes. And I, after I met you, I then read your memoir. Parched. Parched. Which then, when I was at The Fix, we named it as one of the 10 best books yes. about alcoholism. Remember that? I sure do. That's the only accolade I've ever... That couldn't be true. <laughs> I don't believe you. No, it's not true. But it's, it was really, really lovely. Yeah, I, I so appreciated that. Well, you know, what's interesting, we did Mary Carr's Lit, and then we did Russell Banks, a Russell Banks book. And they both wrote me and thanked me Whoa. and said what an honor it was. Oh, beautiful. I was like, that's the way in to Mary Carr. Give her an award. No kidding. Um, but so, and so you hail from Boston. New Hampshire, actually. Didn't know that. Very, very. Oh, no. Boston was the huge, Boston was like the New York of the <laughs> New England area. No, I come from a very small town, Northampton, New Hampshire, coast of New Hampshire. But your story takes place in Boston. Well, I grew up. The childhood part is is on the coast of New Hampshire, but yeah, but then I moved to Boston basically so I didn't have to drive because I was already having major trouble Do, doing that <laughs> drunk driving. driving. I thought, move to a place where they have a subway. Yeah, that's um, so much smarter. Yeah. So anyway, yes, much of my, um, the rest of my drinking career, as yeah. we say, I love that word. Um, and it is a 60 hour, no, it's more than, it's a full time 24 well, seven career. Especially if, let's just say, like you take Ambien and stuff and you're sleeping, you could call yourself working on that career 24 hours a day, right? <laughs> right. If you're having drugs, sleep, that's 24 yeah. hours of work on your well, addiction. That's true. See, I never got, 
you know, I'm a Yankee. Yankees were really anti-medicine. It's very strange. Like the sign of ca- character for a, for a hardcore Yankee is you tough it out, you soldier through. And for whatever reason, I never got into, I never realized you could use drugs and it would help you with your hangover. So I just suffered horrible, horrible hangovers. But to be fair, they're not great for hang. Like what's a great drug for a hangover? Ambien oh. was to sleep. Oh, well, to did, sleep. Okay. Did you not use sleeping pills or oh, anything? God, sleeping pills were the last thing I needed. Because you were just no, drinking no, a pass I just out. passed out. I but was, didn't you wake up when well, the alcohol left your system kind of a thing? Well, yeah, and that would be around, I'd pass out around three and wake up around five. And then I talk about this in my book. I lived in this huge single room occupancy sort of quote loft and I would all my neighbors were welfare alcoholic junkies and I would go and actually knock on the door of Sonny my neighbor and Sonny and would beg him Sonny sell me a couple of beers he would sell me beers for a buck a piece and that would tie me over till the um, bars opened not very neighborly that he wouldn't just give it to you. It wasn't that kind of neighborhood. Well, he was he was dead broke. Plus, I was such a lush. I would have totally drank up his stash. He was an alky too, so he needed right. his own stash. Right. And, yeah. and just because even if you had planned the night before to have alcohol around, you would have had it already. So you couldn't do that. Yeah, but that wasn't my way. No, no, no. No, no planning yeah. at all. Just go for broke every single time. And how, let's talk about how it started. You come from a pretty big family, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how many siblings? Um, there were eight of us. Jesus Christ, I forgot that already. Anna David, it is a Lent. Excuse I know. Me. I know, no. but I'm a Jew and I only <laughs> oh, know okay, I only you're, know it was Lent because yesterday I, I heard on the radio, I forgot. Then yesterday I was like, why am I seeing all these people with like are those prison tattoos on their face? That's what I experienced on Ash Wednesday. I was like, oh, it's Ash Wednesday. That's, they didn't yes. get black it's not tattoos. Night of the, it's not Night of the Living Dead. No, it's the ashes. I want to interject. Yeah. I was confirmed and took my first communion right up the street from you at the really? Church of the Blessed Sacrament in Hollywood, California on Sunset really? Boulevard. Uh-huh. How, how did that happen? You go through this program as an adult. It's a program for adult converts called right of Christian initiation for adults. And you you go through it for a year or two, and then you come into the church. And so I lived in K-Town, and that was somehow, it was, this was so long ago. I mean, I looked in the yellow pages. Right. And so that's how I found it. And um, yeah. And it, what made you decide to do that? Well, um, that's a whole story that I wrote another book about. But what's the title of your other book? Well, I have lots of books, but the book I wrote about my conversion yeah. and working as a Beverly Hills lawyer and and having so a total lives. crisis of conscience and a vocation and saying, I loathe this, I was not made for this. Um, that book is called Redeemed, Stumbling Toward Sanity, no, Marginal Sanity, something, blah, 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 I forget, <laughs> and the and the peace that passes all understanding or something like that. Isn't it amazing how we forget our subtitles? Yeah. Well, they're so long. I know. And did you come up with it or did the publisher come up with oh, it? Do you please. remember? Oh, this is always a major thing. Yeah, the isn't publishers, it? I always have these great titles. For years, I wanted to name a book, Holy Hell. And all the publishers always want to name some other thing. And now there's some movie about a cult called... Holy hell, California cult, of course. Not that I couldn't still use it. But anyway, yeah, they came up with it. Stumbling toward God, marginal sanity, and the peace that passes all understanding. I mean, it kind of it kind of gets it in there a little bit. 
Um, you know, when I, my first book, uh, they made me take out everything about God because God freaked people out. In uh-huh. quotes, and then Eat, Pray, Love came out the next year. Pray. <laughs> Pray. I, I couldn't even reference God. Yes. Well, you have to, you can only mention God if you like are sleeping with a million guys and like, meditating for 10 minutes and yeah apparently and then, but and having a lot of sex like and eating over, a lot of pasta yes and like the tropics <laughs> yeah otherwise you're not allowed to mention no god. that's the rule yeah and so um okay i don't want to get too too off track but god i could go into publishers and and the covers that they make us you know have and I'm telling you, I am really considering just self-publishing from here on in how many books do you have i think i have Seriously, maybe eight. I, I'm really not, not sure. Like eight or nine. How it could depends you on how you count. Right. I have one like self-published that's book that's like a ten thousand word essay. Mm-hmm. I have a book that's a collection of some things that I wrote for a Catholic magazine. But I have two books. I have a book coming out in April called Holy Desperation. Yes, you got holy in there. Yes, exactly. Um, and then I have another book coming out probably around Christmas called Famished a food memoir. I love it. So I'm really stoked about that because clearly famished, just like the counterpart of parched, spiritual thirst, spiritual hunger. Um, They're all very LA books. Uh, But anyway. And so so do you have food situation? You have No, 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 no. I don't have, no. Um, Weirdly, I mean, food and gambling. I'm I'm too cheap to gamble and I'm sort of too vain to- you know, get, not that I guess you could be anorexic, but I also love food yeah. so much. So, um, yeah, there are two of the, like, few areas that I'm not completely knock on wood compulsive. No, but it's a real, it's really celebrating food and the food of Los Angeles. I mean, everything from the food that we can literally forage from the sidewalks, mm-hmm. you know, avocados and Meyer lemons falling from trees to street food, to the farmer's markets, to the Korean hot bean pancake food truck, um, dinner parties that I've had. So it's really, um, I mean, I'm a Catholic and, and at the center of that is a meal, a mm-hmm. God who knows totally knows us so well. Food is what will get them. Food is what will get them to sit down at the table. Mm-hmm. And um, so the shared meal is at the middle of my... Food and wine will get them. Yes, exactly. Yes. There's actually a line from a one beautiful Catholic uh, prayer uh, that says, blood of Christ intoxicate me. Mm. Isn't that great? Mm-hmm. So anyway... And um and the holy book that tell me about that one holy holy desperation yeah um I wanted to call it jolted by the way I wanted to call it it's a book I got asked to write a book about prayer so my my title was jolted prayer as field hospital because <laughs> Pope Francis referred to prayer he, he said he has this beautiful quote about you can't just start throwing stuff heal the wounded heal the wounded heal the wounded prayer as field hospital. In other words, we're all super fragile and wounded and you got to heal people a little bit first. Mm -hmm. This is recovery as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't just sort of, um, you know, tell people to start polishing their shoes and sitting up. It's like, oh, wow, welcome, you know, and you're welcome as you are. But anyway, so it's a book about prayer, weirdly. I mean, these people ask me, Loyola Press, a um, publishing house in 
Chicago asked me to write a book about prayer. And at first I thought, oh, please. And there's so many just pious, spirituality, light, boring to me books about prayer, as well as some really very deep and meaningful ones um, or meaty ones. So I wrote, and um, and I really came from the point of view of um, the spirituality that I have discovered in or through recovery. Mm-hmm. You know, this very, uh, like the the one of the things I love about my sobriety and recovery is this bizarre phenomenon of how no one can help an alcoholic like right. another yeah. whacked out, broken alcoholic who is walking toward the light or however you want to put it. Right. You don't sit at the bar to drugs and nothing gets done then. No. But, and I just think that to me, I didn't even know if I believed in God. I'd been raised Protestant when I got sober, but I just thought God, like many of us, I just thought, oh, God, it's for sort of simple, Dumb stupid people, people. Yeah. yeah, who live in the prairie or something. Um, but the but the phenomenon of getting sober in a fellowship of other drunks and seeing how no, we who feel we have no value, I mean, you come in and you're just so broken down and, and you just think, do I have any capacity to love? Am I so far gone? I am just so insanely self-centered mm-hmm. and sneaky and out for myself and cowardly. Can I really, um, can I ever hold my head up and call myself a, a kind of stand-up human being? And right. um, And you find out, oh, I have one thing at least, and that is I can help another alcoholic. I can sit with another alcoholic and feel them and listen to them and and maybe, lo and behold, even share a little experience, strength, and hope. And so that told me everything about I just I just somehow to me that feeling of rejoicing at, oh, I'm not so far gone. I can't mm-hmm. love someone mm-hmm. in the in the deep kind of agape sense. I, I, I'm not so far gone. I can't rejoice. I'm not so jealous of someone else's happiness that I can't rejoice at their sobriety. And I realize that feeling, whatever that is, that to me is God. Mm-hmm. And so from there, I just, I just examine the, the, the whole phenomenon of how, how is it that a broken person, I mean, what a wonderful, if there is a, a God, a higher power, what a sense of humor and, and how creative. Mm-hmm. Hey, listen, I know you're not good. There's lots of stuff you're not that good at, in my case anyway, um, well. was not, uh, you know, couldn't be not mother material, not very, uh, I'm just not, I don't like to be a leader. I don't like to be a follower. I'm a loner. And um but he had, you know, there was a place for me. Mm-hmm. There was a place for me. And um and and that our our drinking story and that story of just absolute bottom of the barrel, in my case, degradation, you know, that you could kind of resurrect from that and and that that would actually be of use to someone else. Because another a normal person simply does not understand the alcoholic. Mm-hmm. They just think with good reason. I mean, I would too if I were a normal person. You know, pathetic. I mean, mm-hmm. just stop already. Right. You're obnoxious. You're ruining your life. You're a pain to everyone around you. So, but we can get each other. Do you believe it comes from just a thinking problem somebody is born with? Do you believe 
uh, it's a thinking problem that develops. Do not think it's a thinking problem. Alcoholism. Alcoholism. Yeah. It's such, it's such a mystery, right? I love that even today, with all our technology and our advances in medicine, no one really knows what it is. Um, the best I can come up with is, um, I mean, clearly, I have tons of alcoholism in my family, not right. my not my parents, but clearly, it's generational. I mean, alcoholism all through the family, and you just know it goes back even though our family history is sort of shrouded in secrecy. And plus, people don't even, they're so shut down, they don't even tell right. anybody anything. Right. But you just know this is not the first time this has happened. And and I think, I do think it's based on some kind of trauma. Um, trauma that, I mean, they've done studies that on family trauma that say even with no further trauma, trauma will carry through seven generations. So I think, um, you know- You mean genetically it's in people's I've, blood, even if their family never does anything? Exactly. Yeah. Whether it's in the blood, whether it literally is in our DNA or and or the behaviors mm -hmm. that get passed around, uh, down around this utterly baffling, cunning disease that just- baffles everybody. Mm -hmm. It completely repels all intelligence or de or deflects or trumps or however you want to put it. Sorry, I didn't mean to mention that. <laughs> I <one>. mean, <laughs> that is a way to really I'm turn sorry. the conversation. <laughs> exactly. But um, yeah, it's um, so I, 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 because my, my, I mean, my family had a lot of various kinds of dysfunction in it. And I think but I also had two parents who were, love in their way, loving. They were hardworking. They were decent. They were self-sacrificing. They were they loved poetry and music and all, and and all of us kids have. Um, well, I shouldn't speak for them, but but let's say there's a lot of other alcoholics in the family another addict type behavior besides me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we weren't, I wasn't beaten. I was not molested. There wasn't violence. Um, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't an atmosphere of violence. I wasn't talked to with abuse. I wasn't verbally abused, but like my behavior around the severity of my alcoholism and then even sober, the intensity of my, um, you know, lifelong tendency toward romantic obsession. Like that's like a huge, huge wound for me. Mm -hmm. um, and and an ongoing um, sort of situation that I've dealt with. And it just, you know, I mean, I feel like I don't have low self-esteem. I don't lack confidence. Mm -hmm. I'm smart. Mm -hmm. I went to law school in a blackout and graduated <laughs> with honors. I have a... I mean, I think I don't. It's not like oh, I have a high, super high. But I mean, I think I'm like right size. But the way I will go, like attached to the un, you know, an unavailable guy, and then and then that just becomes a thing. I mean, it becomes a kind of compulsive thinking. On Is that own. something that's gotten better as time has gone on? Um, <laughs> 
No, and David, it's, it's getting worse. worse. And, and excuse me, I need to check my phone. No, I'm only kidding. No, but seriously, is it, you know, I'm imagining it's you know something you've done work around. I've done masses of work on all this stuff. I mean, yeah, I do think that's our that's our job. And yes, it has, it has. Um, I think I yes, and if you want to call it better. It has gotten better, and it, and if and if it's gotten better, it's because my relationship with God has deepened. Mm-hmm. Because that's the other thing about addiction. I really do, and to me, it's why, for me and so many others, clearly not everybody by any means, but that the solution is a spiritual solution. Because to me, it really is a spiritual malady. In mm-hmm. other words, it my my relationship to reality. In the in alcoholism gets utterly skewed. Mm-hmm. I'm I feel like a victim, even though I'm victimizing other people. Mm-hmm. Um, I view the world as completely hostile, even when it's being completely neutral. Um, but that's changed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And do, that's changed a lot. But you, um, do you feel like it's changed whether in that day you have a relationship with God or not? Do you know what I mean? Is well, it just progressively you you look at the world differently? Well, no, I yeah, I think it's progressively. I think it's like water on a stone. It's drop. It's suiting up, showing up, doing the work, developing. Um, I mean, if you want a relationship with anyone, especially with a higher power, you you spend time. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I have a prayer life, and I actually write about the spiritual path. And I just went to mass at the noon mass right. at the cathedral. I mean, that's um, so. Now, that doesn't mean on any given day I can be completely spun out mm-hmm. and, and you know, it's like, oh, God, yeah, sure, later or whatever. Yeah. You know, I can't, I'm not feeling anything. And lots of times there's long periods of sort of aridity where you're, you're going through the motions but not feeling any deep um, connection or consolation or whatever, spiritual deserts. But, but I think my sobriety, that's what sobriety has taught me. You do the same thing day in day out i mean you have a certain routine and yeah. you do it as a writer you do it i do it as a sober person and it has really stood me in good stead over time i mean i've been sober 30 years now um so in a way this is the best time it's really the richest time of my life well, how long years of sobriety so yeah, yeah. and you got sober it too right yeah <laughs> i got what? i'm like old no i'm i mean i am applying for medicare this year that's crazy isn't that wild it just it I, I mean i'm so obsessed with age right now and then you know it's like i'm reading about these you know i'm like john mccain's 80 yeah that's not like i think of like you know and this week you know we saw you know warren Beatty looking a little bit like we're out of it at 79. So I see someone who's that and I'm like, it's all over. We're all doomed. And it's like, we all age differently. Yes. You know, both a testament to that, I think. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's like, it, it, but it's it's really, I, I didn't think about this stuff until the last five years. And now yeah. it's really hard not to. Oh, yeah. And it it it's very, it just creeps up on you. And But I, yeah, I just feel so... I have this garden in my backyard. I went out there the other day. I was going to work for one hour. I spent six solid hours. I mean, without a break. So, you know, you keep yourself in halfway decent shape. And But I think it's way more than that. It's the spirit. It's mm-hmm. the, 
it's the um, curiosity about life, the the desire and the capacity to just always feel like, oh, I'm just beginning. I'm just in the verge of something new. Mm. I so want to deepen this. And as you get older, yeah, at some point you realize, wow, I may not reap the benefits of this work that I'm I mean, I've sort of been looking at this adult child stuff lately, and I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, for God's sakes, I'm so freaking old. Like, you know, like we have to use the word child. Me, it will take me like 50 more years to. But then I'm like, no, you do. I firmly believe are doing the work. It's a mystical. It helps. It, it It's going to help those generations that are coming up behind me, whether or not they ever know about me, ever read one thing that I wrote. You know, but we, it's, it's it's like planting it's, the seed. It's not like you have to wait 20 years. It's helping right now. Oh, yeah. So what do you so what do we even decide is, OK, I've reached the point where it's helped. You know what I mean? Yeah, but then you always but that's what I mean. It's helped. we've come. I always feel like, oh, I've come so far and. I have so far to go, and there's a, always a new discovery and a new level of awakening and a new level of growth, and that's what I find very, very exciting. And I think at this point, you know, a lot of my career, my books, and then I, I get to speak a bit, I get to travel around a bit, and um, and I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a super... Um, I'm an introvert, meaning I recharge in solitude to start with, and I also... Um, oh, whatever. It's just easier to sort of be, you know what I mean? No, because like, <laughs> I don't, re- I, I, more and more, I don't relate to that. <laughs> well, that's, no, and now, and I think that's another thing sobriety has given me is, okay, you get to have your time alone, but it, it's almost like a, a moral obligation for one thing to participate more fully and widely. And that's that's been coming for years. Mm. And now I'm at the point where, no, I'm truly, it's not like a chore. Like, I'm truly excited. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've always loved to hear people's stories and um, and sort of to get out. And so, yeah, that, that's, a, that's been a deep gift of my life. And, um, and I... I get to write this um, arts and culture column, weekly arts and culture column for the Archdiocesan newspaper of Los Angeles, Angeles, biggest archdiocese in the country. Thank you. Mm. And um, and it's just a blast. And so it doesn't have to be Catholic with a capital C, nor does it have to be about Los Angeles, but about half of the staff, lo- greater Los Angeles. I mean, the archdiocese is huge. It goes all the way up to Santa Maria. But that has been such a way for me to fall in love with my city all over again. Mm. So I get to interview or, oh, whatever, the head of the L.A. Master Chorale or the do a piece. On, I got to interview Peter Sellers because he did a, uh, yeah, he did a, he directed a Master Chorale piece, um, whatever, the ballet, the opera, but also, um I mean, the Santa Fe Dam recreation area, or I'm going to go to this donut place in Glendora. I mean, it's such a wide mm-hmm. spectrum, gardens and DIY people, Echo Park Film Center, my ultra marathoner runner friend, Jeff. I mean, just all so much that goes on. How in, long have you been doing that? In Los Angeles. Oh, gosh. I think I'm on my third year. It's really, it's really hard because it is every single week. And yeah. it's a lot. I mean, you can't just do your own hood. So, yeah. you know, I have to go to Santa Monica every once in a while Ugh. or Santa Barbara or 
I mean, not have to, but yeah, you get, get to. to. But I yeah. mean, it's time. So you go yeah. do the thing. You take notes or you do an interview. You got to transcribe the interview. Um, and then you have to write an 800-word piece. So mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a lot of work. I also feel like it's a way for me to, um, first of all, serve the church that I love, that is my mother. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it's, I mean, I'll be at mass and people will sometimes come up to me and say, oh, are you Heather who writes that call? Like every once in a while, someone right. will recognize me and I just love that. Not not because, I mean, I love it because they've loved a column of mine and it's put them in touch with some gorgeous place or some, inter, you know, urban flower mill or something that they're interested in. Right. So... And when did your interest in Catholicism start? Was that part of, did you get more passionate about it in the last 30 years since you've been sober? Was that something you always had? No, I'm a convert. No, that that's a complete outgrowth of my sobriety. Absolutely. I was, I mean, just briefly, I was sober. I got sober in 87. I got married very shortly thereafter back in, um, back in New England. My husband and I moved out here. I passed the California bar. I started working as a lawyer for the first time. And um, and I was close to 40. I was no spring chicken. Um, even then, not to mention now. Um, but anyway, so I was working as a lawyer in Beverly Hills, and I had this huge crisis of 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 conscience or just spiritual crisis because I've I've kind of I mean not that I ever put any stock on the American dream but but I was married which I was and I was really clear I don't want to be I don't want to be hanging around the bars I am totally into I want a faithful monogamous is he sober dude mother was an alcoholic sober but not an alcoholic himself right, right. yeah um um you know I'm working as a lawyer I'm making money mm -hmm. for the first time in my life. Oh, people would give their right arm to be a lawyer, all of that, moved to L.A. from New England. And I have never – I, I think I can safely say it wasn't so much miserable, but it was conflicted, mm -hmm. deeply conflicted, because I was so grateful to be sober. And I got in touch with this power greater than myself, and I really, for the first time in my life, truly wanted to give something instead of – grabbing mm -hmm. and hoarding and <laughs> manipulating and really want to sort of, I don't know if I would have used those terms, but really sort of give all of myself. And, but what am I going to do? Oh, I'm 40. By the way, this call, so during this time, this call, literally a call, vocation, vocare, means to call, mm -hmm. call of my heart. And the call was to write, and I'd had it since I was six years old, and I had squelched it, and I'd taken a creative writing class or two, and I would write my little things when I was drunk. But I just, so at this point, I'm like, oh, please, pipe dream. Mm -hmm. You've always been a dreamer. Look at you. You've been in a bar stool for 20 years, a parasite. Like, stop it already. Mm -hmm. Suit up and show up and mm -hmm. be a grown-up. You've mm -hmm. got a law degree. That must be what God wants you to do. Mm -hmm. But, but I had this... That's not, no, I had this huge conflict. And it was, as I look back, really an existential conflict of what was I made for. Mm -hmm. Kierkegaard, Danish philosopher, has this beautiful line, and he says, we come into this world with sealed orders. And obviously our job is to unseal them. And I mm. thought, I've unsealed mine to the extent that one part of my orders are to stay sober and help another alcoholic. 
But there's another part of my order. I have not followed it. And if I die without having followed it, like that to me was sin. Mm. You know, like sin meaning missing of the mark. And I realized if you do not have the balls to quit this job and at least try this, you can fail at it. Mm -hmm. No problem. You can never get anything published. No problem. But you must follow this call of your heart, you know? Couldn't you have done it at the same time? No. No, and I knew I couldn't. Because the because first of all, I was working 50, yeah. 50 60 a hours husband. a week for one thing. Plus, I hated it. Yeah, and I had a husband, and I was, you know, sober. Sobriety recovery yeah. takes a certain amount of time. But more than that, I was like, I was just depleted from yeah. the job. I had yeah. nothing. It was just sucking the life out of me like a vampire. Um, you know, it was not, it sounds good on paper. Oh, right at night on the weekend, no. Plus, I didn't have... Because the job was sucking, because it was so conflicted, I mean, I think that's the deal. It's why I could never write while I was drinking. I mean, I was I was serving trying to serve God and Mammon, if you wanna I think that's what that means. It's mm -hmm. like you can't you can't play it from both ends. In for a in for a dime, in for a dollar. What about those people that, that do, you know, Fitzgerald, Hemingway, you know, all the you know, all the many writers who were able to sort of drink and produce um, great work yeah well more power to them yeah of course like one of them drank himself to death and the other one shot himself in the head yeah I think. and then so. there's Tennessee Williams <laughs> and then there's Truman Capote and then there's you know yeah numerous examples yeah. but I always you know marvel at that you know and even people who come in to sobriety very high functioning right which I think can be extremely problematic for people because they're yeah. confused because here they are operating right. in the world and I don't envy them you know, I think coming in as a bit of a disaster who can't, you know, get off yes. a bar stool serves us better because it's like, oh, good, I, I need to do this. There's no, there's no confusion. There's no, exactly. And even though I had, I mean, I'm driven. I think alcoholics tend to be. We are insane. We have insane amounts of willpower. And that's what got me through law school. I mean, I was mm -hmm. a daily morning drinker all through law school. And I was doing this like kind of horrible, like cheap kind of speed that some, you know, diet pills. Mm. I mean, just unbelievable. But when push came to shove, I would sequester myself for 16 straight hours and study for the exam and ace it. So I had willpower in that sense. I know. Um, but, you know, I mean, functioning in that sense, but I couldn't translate it to the real world. Yeah. And I, no, it was a huge gift. And, and not... Not even such a gift to be a disaster, which I was, but the gift to come up against something, again, existential dilemma, to come up against something that with all our intelligence, all our drivenness, all the love of our families, all our charm, all our, you know, if you're still young, any kind of good look, you know, your sex, whatever, avails nothing, mm -hmm. could not stop drinking. And mm -hmm. that, and what a beautiful um introduction to reality right <laughs> you know and uh, you know something you said willpower wouldn't you say one of the major misconceptions out there people go god you haven't had a drink in so long you have so much willpower mm -hmm. to me I, there's a big difference between discipline and willpower I, I i have no willpower right none at all right not around drinking no no and not around brownies not around anything yeah, yeah exactly but you know it's that it's that thing that that you cannot understand until it's happened to you of just like you just don't want to do it anymore. yes you know 
You're exactly right. And I and it has, I think that we call it surrender. Who knows how we ourselves don't know. Mm-mm. I don't know what happened, but I know that exactly my will got diverted. I mean, my will before, no matter how hideous the repercussions were, my will was still to drink. Mm-hmm. And you can't Make yourself not have the will to drink, but somehow the will got diverted to, I want to stay sober. And then it becomes easy, not not that you're doing it, but it becomes easy to just take the action that will. Well, because it makes you feel better. You realize yeah. quickly when you start doing it that it makes you feel better. I'm so sorry. I keep moving your uh, arm. No, Is it no. driving you crazy? No, not at all. I can't like get it together to no, hold your so mic up to my mouth. A, I'm just like, what? So <laughs> is how I'm constantly touching people here because they can't. And also it's my bad for not having mic stands, which I do and they're annoying. So it's it shouldn't be your responsibility. No, so no, no. as long as I'm, I'm not just driving like, I'm you so crazy. Relaxed. I'm just like, yeah. every time I'm just Good. You're like, oh wait, I'm talking into a microphone that's <laughs> being recorded. I thought we were just chatting. Exactly. But so, and so um, today, okay, so you quit the law. You Do you sell a book right away? What happens? Yeah, so I quit the law. But that was after a few years of just agonizing yeah. and praying. And that's where the just praying and really seeking, God, help me, help me. What is the right? I so wanted to sort of do the quote right thing and, and ducking into churches to pray mm-hmm. during the day. I was always, I'd have to go for work, argue motions and all these there's a million courthouses around LA. So I was always trying to sneak in an extra half hour out, you know, getting a Starbucks and just sitting in my car angsting or just anywhere but the office. But I started, I noticed the, there were churches sometimes near the courthouse open in the middle of the day. I remember this one church in particular in Pasadena. It's all saints, actually, Episcopal. Mm. But anyway, so the the prayer, I you know, I began to see the, the God is the thing, and I don't really get any of it, but no, no, and one thing led to another, and I ended up at last, um, yes, quitting quitting the job, getting um, somehow kind of miraculously freelance work, doing legal research and writing just enough to support me. I've always lived very close to the bone. And and then coming going around to a million churches, that's a whole, I mean, that's a whole story unto itself. But, you know, really, I realized, oh, I have this bizarre urge to worship. It just seemed utterly weird to mm. me. I mean, I hadn't been to church since I was a kid. And so I went around to all these Protestant churches because that's what I've been raised. And it just, nah, I just felt like the meat, I, there's not, I really wanted some stringency, actually. Mm. I wanted to be called to my highest self because really that is what recovery does. You know, the way that I have recovered the kind of um, framework, it's a very we joke about it and we do it very imperfectly, but it's a pretty high standard that yeah. has to do with, you know, in in the church, in Catholicism would call it examination of conscience, you know, daily, nightly. Where have I been? Selfish, dishonest, self-seeking. Do you really do that every night? This focus on rigorous honesty. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, kind of, in some, yeah. in some loose it becomes, way. It just becomes second nature. I think it becomes second nature. We know during the day, I was a jerk. Yeah. I was a jerk to that person. We know before the words are out of our mouth, I'm goss. I'm like, yep, yep. Baldly, just repulsively gossiping under the guise of, oh, I just want you to know my take on this. Uh, I, or or my, or I, I just need to, I need to. 
understand yeah. this person a right. little bit better. Right, help me. Yeah. Help me understand. It's yeah. to make sense and then, of this person. Right, and then three hours later, <laughs> right. the person's it's just... It's still so delicious gossip. It's very, very difficult. And I think even this, not, please, let's not go into politics, but even, I think even this, like the, you know, the the constant running down of, you know, the implication being, I'm so smart and mm. I'm so good and I'm so spiritual and I'm so morally superior and too bad the people who are running the country. And there's something about that that um, is not... It's yeah. about... It's about it doesn't ego. feel good. Yeah. And, it, and what purpose does it truly serve after about like 10 seconds, you know? And that's that's another thing that that I really noticed. Um, and I don't want to do that by saying like, oh, we get it. But but the lack of acceptance around what happened, you know, and you right. start to see. And I, it's, I think it's diminished a little bit. But I felt walking around in the world in yeah. Los Angeles, California. Right. This sadness and this terror and really just being among people who were who were in mourning and angry and there was just and and we've learned you have to practice acceptance if you want any peace and also what am i doing to contribute to the solution right there's this great line in um in some of the literature mm -hmm. i read that says mm -hmm. um you know, are not most of us concerned with our resentments, our self-pity. We're like the man who, the, the retired guy who lulls in the Florida sunshine, complaining about the sad state of the nation. You know, and at the end yeah. of the day, it's like the people I admire are people who, like there's this woman, I just did a piece on her mother, Antonia Brenner. She was a Beverly Hills socialite, gave everything away. Her kids were grown and went to Mexico to a maximum security prison and freaking lived there, became a nun and lived there with the inmates ministering to them for like the rest of, you know, 30 years or something. It's like, okay, that's activism. Right. Activism is not, Watch to me, me, posting my little thing on Facebook and then like waiting for a million. It's like, right. no, please. It's, you know, activism, I think, is always sort of unremarkable in the eyes of the world. You know, you don't, it's not something you... Right. I mean, the minute you start telling everybody about it, it sort of diminishes the sublime nature of it. I think real yeah. service and love and everything that avails is what we do when people aren't looking. Or Yeah, I mean, it's that spiritual materialism is, um, you know, and it's so tempting, like gossip, to just talk about. Yeah, and How just self, you are. know, be self. It's yeah. There's a self righteousness. Yeah, not that we don't need to be informed, and that the, and that it's not interesting and everything, but um, but anyway, so that was part of what, um, yeah, all that stuff drew me. But but what really, I mean, Catholicism. You can't you. There's no way. It's so deep, so rich, so wide, so mysterious. There's no way that you can articulate it. But but at the center of it is, you know, the first mass I ever went to, really as a as a worshiper. Um, I had no idea. I wasn't a member of the church yet. I just went to St. Basil's in Koreatown. I had no idea. I thought they were going to kick me out because they'd realize I didn't know what was going on. And I really saw for the first time. We've all seen a crucifix a million times, but I really saw the body on the cross. In a Protestant church, the cross is empty. 
I saw the body nailed to the cross, and I somehow just, like my whole body just sort of went hot, then cold, and I realized, oh, he's not saying we need to suffer extra. This is God saying, I'm with you in the suffering you're already in. You know, mm. nailed to the human condition, nailed to our consciousness that we're going to die, to the fact that nothing ever goes the way we want it to, our hearts that yearn for love and all the pain that, that goes, right, that goes yeah, around that. Yeah, but sometimes, that. Do, don't you find that things do, as you practice acceptance, kind of go the way you want them to? Right. But, but, and I'm not, and, and I'm not trying to overfocus on the suffering and the darkness. Right. Although it's an, I mean, there's a reason we do die at the end, yes, you know? Yes. So, <laughs> but sucks. then, but we have the resurrection if you're, if you're, but anyway, no, absolutely. It's not, and I'm, I'm sort of playing devil's advocate. I mean, it's not that things never go your way, but I mean, as my friend Father Terry says, if you're lucky, you'll give up all hope of ever being happy in the way you thought you were going to be happy. Right, right. And that's not, a, and he says it with like a chuckle. Yeah. It's not a statement of despair. It's just our trying to engineer our happiness. Yeah. In that sense, yeah. things things do not usually cooperate with anything that you try to engineer. Um, but, right, when you give up trying to engineer, then the whole world opens. And yeah. That, right. And then I think you find this other kind of, this happiness that you didn't even know. And there's and there's suffering in it. And there's, uh, it's not like you're skipping around every second mm -mm. saying, oh, life is grand. But it's like even in the midst of your often loneliness or sort of mystification at, <laughs> at the world, there's a joy. There's, oh, it's March and the, cherries are coming into season you know that joy at the the love letter that god is constantly mm. sort of sending to us and then of course our friends and there are people mm -hmm. who drive us crazy and we mm -hmm. adore mm -hmm. well we have to wrap up that was a good sentence to wrap up on that is harsh that is harsh. <laughs> did you See, feel like a slap in the face ever goes the way you, you want. wanted to talk to me forever <laughs> i did you're such a wonderful wonderful interviewer that is so kind of you you're such a wonderful interview well this was this was fabulous um People want to find out more about you. you have a website. You feel like, I feel like you wouldn't have a website. Oh, I most certainly do. Okay. Heather-King.com. Couldn't get Heather King. Some other Heather King yep. freaking took that. Some other jerk. Yep. Jesus. Some other imposter, interloper. And <laughs> and there you have, uh, you know, links to the number of books that you don't know you have. Books, events, speaking. Love it. Um, my Angela's column, all kinds of stuff. And it's and it's also a, a blog of sorts. Oh, good. Yeah, good, so like there's it. all kinds of info. And you can really get a sense of my sensibility if you go to it. I designed and, it myself. And, oh, you did? That's oh, so yes. impressive. Squarespace or something yes, else? Yes, blogger. Oh, Blogspot. Yeah, blogger. Yeah. Look at you. Do you, and, and uh, the social media thing? Your thing? Um, no. I do. Well, I have a little Facebook. Yeah, I've got. I'm Go on post on Heather's Facebook about uh, your political self righteousness. She'll <laughs> love it. Exactly. Um, well, thank you, and thank you for listening. This was After Party Pod. Uh, if you like the podcast, go review, rate, tell people, and um, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>